Hey friends, I hope you're well. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. For new listeners, I'm Simon Hill, your show host, a qualified nutritionist, physiotherapist, and soon-to-be author with my first book being released with Penguin Random House early 2021. So today's episode, a really interesting conversation on how our diet affects the health of our planet, and in particular, how we can change our agricultural system to draw down carbon from the atmosphere into our soil. To help navigate these waters, we have environmental researcher Nicholas Carter back with us, and we'll be taking a deep dive into regenerative agriculture, in particular holistic grazing, and some of the claims being made by proponents of this method of animal agriculture, including claims made in the new documentary, Kiss the Ground. The entire conversation is around where does environmental science lie? What specifically needs to take place for our agricultural system to help meet climate goals? And and what are overhyped claims that lack evidence to support them? Just before we jump into today's episode, I'd like each of you to take a moment and go to plantproof.com forward slash book and sign up to join my book-related newsletter. This is going to be where I share important information about the book, the title, the cover, how to win a copy, information about the charities where every cent I receive will support, free eBooks such as blood test guides, supplement guides, recipes, etc. that I'm putting together for the release with the book. So if you want a ton of value, information that I've spent years creating to help you optimize your diet and help protect the future of our planet in the process, Go to plantproof.com forward slash book and enter your email. I won't email you unless I have something very important to share and I can promise your details will not be shared to any third parties. Okay, with that out of the way, it's time to get into this episode. Nicholas Carter and myself talking all things regenerative agriculture. I'll see you on the other side. Hey, Nicholas, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to to get a chance to sit down with you. Can you believe it's it's been three months, I think, since our, our last episode? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Thanks for having me first. This is this is awesome. I, I really get to know some some great people in the Plant Proof community, and uh, it's been great. So this is a good timing to to do another. Yeah, and, and I personally really, really enjoyed our, our last conversation and it was greatly received by the listeners. I too got many incredible messages from from people all over the world who were inspired by the the information that you had to share. So, if anyone hasn't listened to that episode, I, I strongly recommend. Even it can it can be after this one, jumping back and and having a listen, or or even before this one. And I've made it pretty clear myself on this show. The science on on planetary health is incredibly complex. There's so many moving parts. There's a lot of finger pointing and a lot of agendas, which is not too dissimilar to nutrition science. And I think amidst all of this chaos, you are a wonderful voice of clarity and reason. So thank you for for coming back for for round two and, and continuing this conversation. Well, I appreciate it. I think that uh, science as a whole is one of the best ways to determine what's true. And there's all kinds of other agendas. There's beliefs, there's culture, there's 
so many intricacies of what forms people's truths. And when it comes down to it, I think science is something that can you can disprove yourself. It's it's a culture of doubt, right? It's a culture of wanting to to get it right and also not stick too firm to it and kind of evolve in the way you're thinking. So it's been, you know, what's framed my worldview and it's kind of been what's framed uh, me down this path. So perhaps we we kick this off by laying down a little bit of context for this episode and, and why we've we've joined again to continue that first conversation. I think it was a month or so ago. I mean, we've been in, in regular contact since the last episode. We were discussing a, a follow-up episode to dig a little bit deeper into regenerative agriculture and and particularly this concept of holistic grazing which we did briefly speak about in the in the last episode there were a lot of people wanting to hear more about it and people may have stumbled across white oak pastures and and sacred cow you know farms and resources that are sort of created by enthusiasts of holistic grazing and then in more recent weeks it's become even more topical with the release of the Kiss the Ground documentary on Netflix. And and many of the listeners will recall that I have had Ryland and, and Finian, the, the co-founders of Kiss the Ground, on the show earlier this year. And the, the thing that I really wanted to, to explore with you is this sort of false dichotomy that it's either intensive animal agriculture, these factory farms, with, with monocrops, or it's holistic grazing. And I think we can all agree that getting rid of intensive animal agriculture and, and most monocropping is going to be beneficial. But the message that it's this type of farming or holistic grazing seems to be somewhat incomplete, particularly when I speak to you and, and, and when you share the science with me, that's the way that it seems. And, and I can't help but feel that people watching are being slightly led astray. On the surface level, we're told that holistic grazing improves soil quality and creates greener pastures and that it's it's the solution to climate change or it's very much a solution to climate change and and is positioned as as sort of this savior. And admittingly, that is a very hopeful message and I don't want to remove hope but anyone who who listens to this show will know that I'm not one for getting excited by anecdotes and and want people to truly understand where the science lies. I always talk about the evidence hierarchy, how we can let empirical data inform our food choices, and in the context of today's conversation, inform our food choices to to help improve not just our health but the planet's too. And while I think it, it can be very easy to get distracted by, by beautiful cinematography in the presence of, of celebrities. What I care most about and what I like to think each listener cares most about and what I know that you care most about when you strip away all of the hype are other are solutions being put forward supported by high quality environmental science, science that you are, are very much across. So that's sort of the, the agenda you know, and the reason for us coming back together to explore these claims that are not only being made by Kiss the Ground documentary, but by enthusiasts of, of holistic grazing across the globe and, and which ones are supported by science and, and which ones are sort of somewhat overhyped. So 
to kick this off, I know that you've watched the documentary. Why don't you sort of give a, a synopsis from from your lens, what the documentary's sort of central thesis was, and and as an environmental researcher, what you thought of it? I thought there was a lot of good. I thought there was a lot of claims that weren't backed by evidence at all. But I think there is a, a very good message communicated of hope. It's very well in terms of cinematography, as you mentioned. And I think if we look at kind of what regenerative agriculture is, there's just so much to unpack there. Like holistic grazing is a part of it. But regenerative agriculture is also conservation. Like there's a conservation part to it. There's uh, green manures and very organic, almost veganic, you could say stock-free as well, if it's not ethically based. There's that whole component to it as well. So there's a lot there. But the holistic grazing part is something I didn't expect to see as much of in the movie, but it was a pretty big part of it. And it, it was a part of it through Alan Savory, and it was a part of it through Gabe Brown less so, but that was a big part of it too. And so I think it's important to unpack each kind of aspect of regenerative agriculture, what is backed by science, what's not, because each portion of this has been studied for a long time. This isn't new. Basically, regenerative agriculture is, like I mentioned, it's, it's conservation, it's holistic grazing, and it's a style of organic farming. So in, in separating those three, they've all been studied in depth. And uh, holistic grazing would be the one that sounds new to a lot of people. But this started with Alan Savory and his his work you know, goes back to the 70s. And we can put a pin in that. We can talk about that because this is a big part of this whole holistic grazing movement. He's He's kind of the founder of it. So it's been studied. My point there is it's been studied for decades and decades and decades. And some claims like the soil in particular shows improvements, but I think it's important to show what we compare it to. So compared to what? Compared to typical grazing, it's improvements for sure. Uh, but it's all depends what you compare it to. If you're comparing it to a forest, a rewilded area, uh, not so much, right? And let's also look at the claims of it. Holistic grazing is one, it's about the soil, but also it's about the major claim made in the film, which is that it will reverse climate change. Can I ask you on that point, right? And, and, and you know, a number of environmental researchers and environmental scientists, climate scientists, how do you feel like this documentary will be received by the science community? The climate science community won't even watch it largely because of how it's been promoted. It's been promoted as a climate cure to reverse climate change. These are things that anyone that studied climate science and studied the, the large intricacies of just environmental research, it's complicated. There's many solutions. There's no silver bullets. And the way it's being promoted is it, this is a silver bullet. And uh, it, it couldn't be further from the truth. It's really not. It's, it's, it's a piece, just like many other things. So the ones that do watch it, you know, I think some of them would be pissed because they'd be pissed at some of the claims being made. But they'd also say, you know, the, the food and agriculture component of climate science has gotten a lot of attention over the last decade. And there's lots of climate scientists speaking out in favor of changes in the space because th they need to. We need to look at like the environmental assessments of these farms, which is a way to do it better, uh, which is something that we should kind of separate the like celebrity comments on it. Right. The whole organic movement is just such a polarizing topic. So yeah, I think overall, like there's going to be some that watch it, but there's many that won't just because of how it was promoted. And before we, I guess, dive into a little bit more of the history, you mentioned there, Alan Savory, and, and, and sort of walk through 
where this whole theory of holistic grazing has sort of come from. What parts of, of the documentary did you like? What, what did you think was well done and uh, are sort of genuine solutions that are very much backed by science? There's a number of parts. So I love the parts on agroforestry. Agroforestry is not something that can necessarily scale globally, but it's a, it's a key solution in certain areas of the world where they don't have lots of space, but they have forest. Some of that forest is being protected. You can grow some, some, uh, some food trees in there. Uh, so that part on agroforestry, I think, should have had a, a bigger component. I really like the part on on composting and food waste, and I like how they they highlighted San Francisco's you know ability to implement this. Right, they have trucks going around collecting people's waste. They're in, enforcing to put waste in a certain bin, right, to make sure that everyone's doing their part. Because I think this is key. Yeah, those those are two for sure right away that I like in terms of actual regenerative agriculture. I'm a huge fan of cover crops, intercropping. We we can't just feed the world off monocrops because they do damage the soil. There there is many damaging aspects to it. But I think we should look at that in terms of, you know, the the things that regenerative agriculture is getting well is, is doing well is is looking at these green manures, adding this to the, to the soil, doing polycrops, protecting the soil from running off. The the aspect of kiss the ground that looks at soil in particular, it's a very valid thing to look at. Soil is an issue. Soil is a, is a major issue. If there's 60 years to go, I think that's the claim they made that there's 60 years ago. I mean, that's not backed by evidence at all. The UN stat that they provided was from a speech at the UN. And there's many people that have dug into how much realistically there is in terms of years left of of soil. So how many harvests left from 60 to hundred, there's just no peer reviewed evidence showing that because that's a very difficult thing to quantify. Am I right that, that when the UN stated that someone called them out and, and asked for, for evidence to support that and they couldn't? Exactly. This is what happened. And it's not that people disagree that we have an issue with soil. We do. Uh, and there's many reasons for that. Not just, not just agriculture based. Like when you, when you deforest, an area too. This is in, this is very damaging to the soil as well. So soil issues are valid, but we don't have some sort of sixty year measure. So there's a lot of in the movie. There's a lot of fear mongering in, in certain parts of it. But to your question, there was a lot of good parts to it. Like uh, when they, when you look at the comments from uh, Paul Hawken in Project Drawdown, I'm a huge fan of that. There's there's some great work being done from Project Drawdown, and they they look at you know hundred of different solutions and quantify them based on how much carbon they're drawing down. And plant-rich diets was one of them. Regenerative agriculture was one of them. There, there's many different parts of it. Mm. I mean, I found that part a little bit weird. I, I follow Paul Paul's work and, and I've read that the Drawdown Review, which is uh, available online, free free to download for anyone to look at. And you know, it's a it's a very sort of detailed report on on as you say, hundreds of different solutions. And it does rank them by how powerful they are, how how impactful they can be to help us draw down carbon out of the atmosphere and 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 move from from climate warming to climate cooling, I guess, uh, as the movie puts it. But his sort of list, you know, clearly shows that in the top two or three or four solutions that a plant rich diet, what we're eating, being far more important than sort of you know ha- how it's being grown. Which again adds to the work of of like Hannah Ritchie, who you've spoken about before. He clearly shows that that is is far more powerful than 
holistic grazing. But I feel like this sort of message within the documentary about shifting to more plant-rich diets, it was there if you looked really, really closely, but it was very, very subtle. Which is ironic because the only way you're going to achieve any sort of regenerative diet is by a massive switch to plant-rich diets. You don't need to be vegan. You don't need to go 100% towards the the plant-based, but you need to shift significantly this way. We're talking like 70, 80, 85% of your diet being plant-based to to come anywhere close to being able to adopt this regenerative diet. And we can, we can break that down. We talked a lot about land use in the last uh, episode we did together. How do you do this whole documentary and not talk about the land currently being used by grazing? Like the land currently being used by livestock in the whole agricultural space. So livestock use 75% of all agricultural land. And if you look at all habitable land on earth, that figure is about 30 to 45% used for livestock systems, right? And this is despite most of them being confined, most of them being in small confined places. So just think of that high level point and say, well, you were going to put them on pasture and you're going to do it better for sure. But how are you going to do that? There's no evidence at all that this is even possible without a massive scale deforestation. And we don't want that. Yeah. So what you're saying is there's just, there's literally not enough room to switch to this form of animal agriculture and produce the same amount of meat that is being produced today. And there's evidence for that too. So like this is not something that I just kind of picture. There's been studies that looked at the US, for example, if we... Uh, this was a study by Matthew Hayek, which who, anyone doesn't know, you should look him up. He, he does phenomenal work in this space. And the study is called Nationwide Shift to Grass-Fed Beef. Basically, the conclusion was if Americans were to not alter their beef consumption, U.S. beef production would require 63 to 270% more land if the U.S. wanted to match the current factory farm beef to grass-fed beef. So there is something to be said about doing our, our grass-fed farming better. Like the, I'm all about that. Like we can improve the soil. If you're going to use that land for grazing, no matter what, which many farmers will, right? We won't be able to get many to switch. Then do it better. But that message needs to come with the prerequisite of shifting towards a plant-based diet. It was there, I guess, subtly. So both Gabe Brown, I think Gabe Brown spoke about bison and he spoke about that how there were you know millions of bison in 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 America hundreds of years ago, and that they would pass over land and not come back for a year. And then Alan Savory again spoke to to his land and and sort of his practices and and said that if you came and looked at his land, you'd rarely see any animal on the land because he would pass it over the land for sort of three days is what he said, and it would come back in six to nine months. And and what that tells you is that this practice requires a lot of land and, and relatively few animals compared to the intensive form of factory farming and compared to traditional grazing. So the inevitable result of that is a significant reduction in 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 meat supply and i think that that paper that you speak about there the matthew hayek one that was comparing factory farm to traditional grazing and even in that circumstance when you moved from factory farming to traditional grazing it was it was over 70% reduction in meat supply yeah so so this this message need, it had to be in the movie multiple times and it wasn't we looked for it. Obviously, this is something that we wanted to see because this adds a lot more credibility to what the evidence is showing when you're adding that message in. 
So this is something that wasn't in there nearly enough. It, it should have been highlighted right off the very start. And when I thought that it was sort of going to be brought up, which was towards the end, and I don't think this was was Ryland's intention at all. I think you know documentaries are cut and there's so much filming and, and they're chopped up to sort of create a narrative that the producers want at the end of the day. It's a story. But he very much led on that if you're going to choose meat, choose grass-fed, pasture-raised meat. But there's a big problem e- even in that, right, that the majority of grass-fed, pasture-raised beef is not regenerative. No, and it uses four times more methane just in how uh, cows and cattle actually digest grass. It's more fibrous diet. So in digesting that, they're emitting four times more methane. They're likely going to be involved in some sort of deforestation, right? And some people will say, well, then, no, like we're just going to use it on marginal land. But if you go back far enough, a lot of land used to be forest, right? And if you look at in Brazil and in certain areas in South America, a lot of grass-fed, like this is grass-fed beef, right, down there. And people will say, well, I don't want to source any of my, my meat from Brazil. And there's whole campaigns stopping that, right? But then at the same time, there's another movement saying, well, let's have more grass-fed beef. So it just, it doesn't, it's not backed by evidence to make this switch to extensive grass-fed beef. And when he made that comment, you know, why didn't he just say regenerative beef? I mean, maybe it was edited out, just like you're saying. I mean, it it, it could have been a number of reasons why that was stated. But I I just think that, yeah, the whole switch to grass-fed is a very major misconception in our food space. Like people think, I want to eat local grass-fed beef to support the environment, but no evidence backs that up. Okay, so you mentioned marginal land there. I want to I want to sort of come back to that and discuss that in a little bit because I think that's an important thing for us to consider is to what is the actual purpose of this land in the in the first place because again that false dichotomy is that we're comparing intensive factory farmed agriculture to holistic grazing and that they're the two they're the two options we have to use that land. But if we're if we're looking at at climate change as a whole there are there are, to my knowledge, and you're certainly well, you know, far more across this science than I am. But to my knowledge, there are many other options for for using that land. But what I what I think we should do now first is just look at the the science on the the claims that holistic grazing as a as a practice itself can actually draw down more carbon into the soil than is is emitted, you know, th- through the practice as a whole. So this is the biggest issue I have with the movie. It's the claim that we can draw down unlimited amount of carbon, keep it in there forever. This is insinuated multiple times throughout the movie. The idea that we can reverse climate change through just improving our farmland soils. And this goes back to Alan Savory's claim in his TED Talk he did about it reversing desertification and being the solution for climate change. So let's look at the evidence. I mean, there's there's all kinds of different uh, papers that looked at this. If you just type in holistic grazing, or if you type in to Google Scholar, uh, look at balance savory as a whole, you're going to get tons and tons of papers that do this. But let's let's look at one key one. So I think one key one we should look at is the um, FCRN Grazed and Confused Report. And just to break down how kind of major and and important this this report was, this was from 2017. And it was a 127-page report over two years, over 300 sources. And it was a meta-analysis of all the research out there on different forms of grazing. You know, some key conclusions they, they made were that there's no evidence for 
soil carbon being stored long term, right? It's it's reversible, it's easily reversible, and it's time limited. So, you know, I know they worked on this movie for a long time, like seven, eight years, and this is uh, they've I'm sure they've communicated and and learned all kinds of stuff to their followers. But how do you look at this topic so long and not read both sides of the evidence. I mean, you're really not going to read much evidence at all from Alan Savory, but if you look at the other side of the evidence, it's going to say that any carbon that's stored in the soil, it's time limited, right? So I, I just want to unpack this a little bit more and, and I want to come back to to easily reversible and time limited. But before we do that, you mentioned sort of Alan Savory and not having a lot of science. He is making, you know, rather wild claims why is it that we can't we can't trust the science that he's putting forward or or his sort of personal experience? A number of reasons. He doesn't believe in science. So I mean, the Range Magazine uh, interviewed him, uh, you know, a decade or so ago, and uh, he's quoted saying, "You can even look this up." He's saying, "You'll find the scientific method never discovers anything." And the reason for that is because when he came out with these extraordinary claims, it required extraordinary evidence, and people weren't necessarily saying, "No, this is not true." He is a respected conservation manager, but they're saying, okay, well, if this is true, let's replicate it. Let's test it. There's been studies all over the world in Australia too. And they looked at all of his methods he's using of holistic grazing and experimental validation is the best process for evaluating whether holistic management works. And, uh, his answer to this is saying that while good managers manage well, he says this all the time. And you're obviously not a good farmer if you're not doing it right. You're not a good manager of your land. So you you don't know what I know. So this is this is just a very like strange counter argument to put back because if it's so great that it is, if it does store all this carbon in the soil, where's the evidence? Where's the proof? There's been evidence like the study that looked at over many years in Australia, it showed that you could do one of two things. You could you could either improve the soil or you could draw down some carbon. And the reason why you could do one of those two two things, but not both, is because if you're going to draw down a lot of carbon, you're going to have the the cattle almost rarely ever touching this land. If you're going to improve the soil a bit, well, you're going to have them touching it a bit more, but you're not doing both, right? Because as soon as you have cattle on the land, you're going to emit a lot more methane. So yeah, there, there's other reasons as well. I mean, you could, you could look back in his history and I, I don't like necessarily pointing out individual things people have done because everyone makes mistakes, but... In the 60s and 70s, he was responsible for 40,000 elephants being uh, killed. And the, the reason for this was because he convinced all kinds of people responsible for this land in Africa that they're actually damaging the land. So the elephants walking around were damaging the land. So you can look this up. There's, there's, there's proof of all this, that he he's responsible for these 40,000 elephants. And that's not a reason to discredit his work now, of course. But this is something to keep in mind, right? As your as your face of your documentary, as your face of your movement, perhaps there's someone else you can maybe consider using. He ordered to have forty thousand elephants slaughtered, and I'm presuming now he realizes that that was a mistake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't want to see this as a sort of uh, a character ass- assassination because, as you you say, the science here does speak for itself, but. That is, that is interesting. That's that's definitely quite a, a checkered history. So he hasn't published any significant data with on-site measurements backing up what he's saying. So he has. He has. You can look it up under the Savory Institute. Of course, get both sides of this argument as well. But in the meta-analysis that I mentioned before from Grazing Confused and, and, and others as well, other reports as well, 
they looked at all of his studies and they looked at every other study, any study that he didn't fund, any study that he wasn't a part of. And we're talking a level of difference in, in soil carbon, uh, carbon stored in the soil of seven to 10 times more in his measures. And just for a reference there of that seven to 10 times, like if you can store one or two times the amount of carbon in your soil, that takes a long time and you're doing very well. His were just vastly exaggerated and nowhere near the evidence of anywhere else. So how is this like exclusive way of doing it, which he's taught many people of how to do it? How is it not measured in many different ways? And, uh, you know, you talk to people that have looked at this for a long time and, and they'll just say, well, this is just his certain agenda that he wants to push. Yeah, well, either his, his data is, is wrong and inaccurate or what he's saying cannot be replicated by anyone else which both of those are our issues anyway, if we're putting forward a, a solution for people to implement around the world, right? What was the sort of conclusion of the FCRN report in terms of how much carbon or the net carbon sequestration or emissions from this practice? They basically concluded that the only way you can have a, a carbon neutral beef is if you have you know a couple cows in in the area like you're significantly reducing the amount of number of cattle or cows that are that are farmed in the area and that's the only way you're going to get that because you're going to get all kinds of carbon sequester from the trees and the rewilded growth of the vegetation that's the only way but none of these grass-fed farms only have a couple cows of course they have they have tons right and part of this regenerative agriculture movement that's damaging is it's, it's it's almost saying that you can just take the cows that we have right now and put them on pasture and it'll be fine they're not saying a reduction in the amount of cows farmed. They're not saying a reduction in the amount of animal source foods consumed, right? They're not, they're not saying that message that needs to be communicated to be even close to what the evidence shows. Okay. So you, you mentioned before easily reversible and time limited. Can you walk through what you mean by that? So it, it's going to be easily reversed in terms of different methods of grazing, right? This is, this is a, a certain complex way of doing it that if it's done wrong, it's going to be actually a, a leading cause of soil erosion, right? So you have both extremes being communicated here. So certain methods of grazing, certain methods of applying, uh, you know, chemicals, pesticides, synthetic fertilizers, like this is a component of it too. Uh, certain methods of doing this will erode the soil. So in, in terms of it being time limited, even in trees, it's time limited to an extent, right? But the thing with trees and forests that are protected over long periods of time, it's, it's going to be stored above ground and below ground. And typically a forest that's protected is not going to have a whole lot of movement. It's going to be protected from hurricanes and storms. Just picture a hurricane rolling through large, vast uh, pasture land. This is how a lot of runoff happens. This is how we get introphification and dead zones in like Florida, for example, there's a massive, massive dead zone there in, in the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico that is related to runoff from farms. And it's not just manure, right? It's both manure and synthetic fertilizers, but it's, it's runoff from area that is not protected like a forest would be. So the big, the big message there, I'm kind of going a little bit off topic, but the big message is how then, since, since agriculture can't on its own address climate change, it really, it really can't. It's not the solution for climate change, but we need to eat, right? So how do we reduce the amount of land used for agriculture how do we feed everyone you know, healthy diets? How, how do we produce it in a way that does the least amount of harm and can be done regeneratively and sustainably for a long time? And the evidence points that it's reducing the land we use and uh, doing it in a way that's you know, as least damaging as possible. 
which essentially means that some of this land currently dedicated to animal agriculture, you mentioned before the, the huge percentage that, that is dedicated to animal agriculture, would be re, rewilded or, or what would we be better off doing with this land? And also, what would you say to someone who says, well, that land is arid land and the best thing we can do is turn it into a grassland? Well, you can have a rewilded grassland and it's going to be better than a pasture land, right? So I think this is a key thing to to mention, right? Even rewilded vegetation, there's been studies even in Australia that have shown this, that if the government paid people for carbon farming, for example, which is not like an out there idea, there's there's been tests of this happening. And paying someone for carbon farming is basically when you're you're allowing areas of your farm to to rewild, allowing trees to grow if you can, but maybe it's a case where you can't, then how much carbon is going to be uh, stored down in that? And factor that in based on how much you're paid for raising livestock, which could in many cases not do that because it's going to emit methane too. So that that whole marginal land thing is, is a very interesting point brought up because even some of the worst forms of land can actually still support different hardy plants. Like if you look at hemp, for example, hemp can be a major solution and it's actually a desert crop. So there's been many areas that are are, are very, very damaged land that can grow hemp. So I, I think part of that argument is just to, to show, let, let's push the agenda that we need to use cattle in this land. I guess the, the playing devil's advocate there, if you're a farmer and you have this piece of land that is you know, somewhat arid. I'm thinking about in Australia because this is often something that is is brought up here in Australia. You know, marginal land, if they're not currently by the government incentivized to store carbon, then they're in a little bit of a predicament, right? I think you could also advocate for things like silvopasture because you're you're adding a lot more trees and vegetation to land. So it's it's doing like a mixed amount of farming. Just like when you're planting just crops just for for plants, you want to have a a mix of different crops. You don't want to have just one crop for many different reasons. So you can do a mix of of trees and shrubs, and that's going to help your land too. That's going to help it uh, avoid erosion. That's going to help it uh, sequester down some carbon. So I think this is a a key thing to advocate for as well. It doesn't need to be all or nothing. Silvopasture, can you you define that? Very simply, this is probably not the actual definition, but very simply, it's adding trees or shrubs or vegetation of some sort within an area of pasture, right? So it's it's kind of getting both what the conservationists, what the, 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 the plant-based science is showing that we need to significantly reforest areas of land and lower the agricultural footprint. But this is, you know, taking those benefits and putting it on a, a pasture land that they are, are given money for to, to raise cattle. Okay. So this idea about being carbon negative. I think you, you, you've covered that, the FCRN report, and there are a bunch of other reports that that review Alan Savory's claims and, and go through in a sort of meta-analysis fashion like you've just stated and, and all come to the same conclusion that there, there isn't evidence to, to support these claims from a scientific point of view. What do you then say or how do you feel about the likes of, of white oak pastures, which is fairly vocal, I guess, on, on social media, marketing this farm as carbon negative? Uh, yeah, this is something that comes up all the time. How do I feel about it? I just think, show me the science. Show me the evidence that you can be carbon neutral. And there's there's no shortage of funding for 
people in the environmental and agriculture space to look at livestock systems. The entire food and agricultural organization is uh, the FAO, which is part of the UN, is is designed around improve, small improvements within our current system that can make things better. It's not designed for looking at a major shift towards plant-based. That's why someone like uh, organizations like Eat Lancet are doing phenomenal work because they are looking at these these bigger shifts that that replicate the science. So for White Oak Pastures, they commissioned a study from, from Qantas. I think we talked a little bit about this the last time, but I think this is really important. They commissioned a study from Qantas, which is just an environmental organization that will look at whatever you want to look at. About a decade ago, they looked at plastic bottles when they were first like really ramping up. And they were commissioned to, I don't know if it was by Nestle or it was from one of the the major mm. plastic bottle companies. Uh, it was Nestle. Yeah. Was Nestle. Yeah. yeah. And they were commissioned to see whether we should have these in national parks. And the results show it was fine. They, they produced results that showed it's okay and it's great. We should ramp up these plastic bottles in national parks and protected areas and, you know, ocean areas. And so this is an organization that I've been very critical of because they'll just produce whatever results. So on the other side, to make sure that I'm playing devil's advocate with myself, they were commissioned to do a study for Impossible Foods. I equally discredit that too. The The Qantas study from Impossible Foods is not something you should take to the bank as truth. Now, you know generally what's in the the plant-based products. So you can say, well, if it's you know, more plants versus less animal source fruits, there's lots of evidence for that. But just as an organization, they were commissioned by White Oak Pastures to produce these results. They weren't peer-reviewed. They still weren't done. I'm told it actually is coming out with something soon. But when that does come out, I'd like to see uh, how is methane valued? Is it, ma- is it valued over 100 years or is it valued over 20 years? Because valuing methane over 20 years is more accurate in terms of how it impacts our atmosphere. It's a much stronger greenhouse gas than carbon. So we should be looking at this as a dangerous thing, but also as an opportunity because because it's short-lived and it's more dangerous, the quicker we reduce methane, the quicker we can see results in our atmosphere, the quicker we can you know, reverse this major global issue of climate change. So, you know, I'm going to look at those results for, for methane and how they, they measure that, because that's a key way that so many areas of agriculture is, is underestimated. And we can put a pin in that because there's other, other areas, too, that, that that happens. But as a whole, the white oak pastures thing, I think, uh, you show me the results. I'm, I'm totally open to reading anything people send me. People send me all kinds of stuff related to the benefits of regenerative grazing, holistic grazing. And, and I read it. I want to be unbiased. I want to read these things that even if I know that there's funding bias, even if I know that the author is specifically looking for an area that they want to conclude, show it to me. Because I don't want to be this guy that just reads the evidence that supports my evidence that I read before. I want to kind of challenge my own views as well. And I think it's important. So that the FCRN report that you talked about before, which essentially goes through all of the scientific evidence and comes to the conclusion that the claims made by by Savory are not supported by evidence that this practice of holistic grazing does not sequester more carbon or, or greenhouse gas emissions than are being emitted through the practice. Who put that report together? Were they were they vegans? Did they have any agenda in that report? No, I mean, there's some really great people to put together. One was uh, Dr. Tara Garnett, and uh, you can look her up. She's done all kinds of phenomenal work. Uh, she's not vegan. Uh, I think she, maybe she might have been vegetarian at one point, but she was also received funding from 
Danone. Danone's like the largest yogurt company in uh, the world. And I, I saw this just when I was looking at the different authors of the stuff I'm reading. And I found this and that doesn't discredit her, but I think you should factor that in. You know, she's received funding specifically related to producing milk and dairy and, and cheese. And, uh, you know, her conclusions are in no way supportive of, of that. One conclusion like she had for the, the Grays and Confused report was the maximum global potential in the most optimistic conditions and using the most generous assumption would offset. Uh, so this grazing type, this, this, you know, best forms of grazing would offset only 20 to 60% of emissions from cows. And that's because there's so much methane emitted, uh, four to 11% of total livestock emissions and only 0.6 to 1.6% of total annual greenhouse gas emissions. So just picture that for a second. Let me just break that down a little bit more of the most optimistic scenarios. All it's going to sequester is not even 2% of the global greenhouse gas emissions, but it's going to use 37% of all land. Now measure that land with uh, a tropical forest and kind of a more extreme situation, but even temperate and boreal forests will sequester way more than that. If this is where the science is, how do you think the likes of, of Dr. Mark Hyman and other you know celebrity type advocates have been convinced that this is climate solution and convinced that this is the answer to to radically transforming our food system to one that is focused on on no longer decimating our environment and instead nourishing it well i i can't speak to some of those you know doctors necessarily of how they're convinced but i can speak to you know how celebrities are convinced this is not their area at all they're you know they would be very impressionable to anyone showing them some sort of evidence and a story right a, a convincing story but I think the whole organic thing gets lumped in with pesticides and chemicals. And you saw in, in Kiss the Ground, like they, they compared, like they literally compared pesticides and synthetic fertilizers to the Holocaust. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, this is like some, some next level, like fear mongering happening here because the evidence doesn't support that at all. There is issues with synthetic fertilizers. There is issues with chemicals. There is issues with, with glyphosate. And on top of that, there is funding from like these companies like Monsanto skewing the results here. But even major, major meta-analysis, like Dr. Hannah Ritchie wrote an article on this, and there's I just posted on my Instagram recently, you should, you should take a look at it. There is other sides to the story. And I think the whole fear-mongering tactic is not the right way to go. And this is how many, many people are convinced of it. The the fear of like what they compared in, in, in Kiss of Grail was first synthetic Fertilizers and pesticides equal Holocaust, and then it equals being consumed through breast milk and then going to a baby. So this is just not what the evidence shows as a, a major concern that people should be having. Instead, people should be having concerns of some of the, the meat that you're eating. And I think that's, that's an important point because I, I feel like you can sort of win people over in this argument simply by understanding that they like their meat. They want to to be an advocate for meat, and now you can show them soil that looks healthier and convince them that buying that meat is actually beneficial for the planet, and that in buying that meat you are you are part of the solution. You know what would you what would you say to that? It's easy to create doubt. The whole doubt campaign of all you need to do is create doubt in people. This is something that goes back to smoking, right? This is something that goes back to other things that we've realized there's there's major truth that's being hid behind these various campaigns. So 
you've probably seen this in the nutrition space as well. Like all they really need to do is create doubt and create some little, little piece of evidence that can convince them that their habits that they've probably been told many different times are not the best way to eat. It's not the best for the environment. But if you get this little thing, you're like, oh, wow, this is like an underdog. This is something that the science doesn't know about. And I think that's, you should be very skeptical of anyone that says, you know, the science is not caught up or the science does not, can't keep up with my methods of farming. You should be very skeptical of that because not the science is perfect. There is things that we can't, like you can't measure as a scientist, like there, that does happen, but it is the best measure of truth. It is the best me- measure of if you can replicate something and if something is scalable. So back to what I mentioned about the, I thought this was very interesting that they compared different conventional ways of farming to the Holocaust. If you look at this exact same time in Germany, this was also a major movement of what's called biocyclic farming. And this is like biocyclic vegan farming. So this is like a stock-free form of farming that uh, is used in even like uh, Gabe Brown's farm. Like there's certain methods that he's using on that farm, which also date back to this exact same time in Germany. And this was from a German pioneer of organic farming called uh, Adolf Hoops. So a lot of the green manures and intercropping and a lot of these great ways of growing plants also dates back to the, the exact same time. So it just shows the skewed level of storytelling that they're trying to use. And it's a documentary. What do you expect? Like it, it, documentaries you always should take with a grain of salt. But it was just interesting that that wasn't mentioned. It kind of feels like this is a, a sort of last effort to to rebrand grazing and kind of a, a attempt to shift to to this regenerative form of grazing, which offers a, an immense amount of hope. Yeah, totally. And, you know, like I mentioned, there is aspects of it I agree with. The conservation side, uh, some of the organic methods are used are, are good things to have. But it comes with a, a side that's not backed by evidence. It comes with a side that's going to help people feel good about eating meat and saying, well, I just buy the local grass-fed beef that I'm told is regenerative. You know, there's not going to be any regulations on that, at least anytime soon. There's not going to be any sort of evidence to show this is proof. I mean, look at anything in the grocery store that says it's natural, right? This is just not something that is regulated, right? It's just a way to, to confuse people and convince them to buy the product. It's an interesting movement. I, I'm supportive of it in, in many ways. I've written a lot about regenerative plant-based farming, there is things to take away from it. I want to make that clear. Like there is, there is a lot of good stuff happening within it. What I will say is, you know, show me the evidence. Show me what's actually can be replicated and show me what can be scaled. Show me what can feed 10 billion people in 2050. This isn't going to be it. I think that's the, the, the key part is that, and that's when I see people talking about it, whether it's celebrities or, or, or celebrity doctors talking about it, is that as we discussed earlier, while this might be better than intensive animal agriculture, factory farming, the science suggests that it is not the climate solution and, and solution to reversing climate change that it's being made out to be. And secondly, it's going to dramatically reduce the total meat available. And if you just rationalize that, and we spoke before that one report said over 70% decrease in meat available per person, and that was on traditional grazing. So holistic grazing, we could be talking 80, 90% less meat globally based off that that paper that Matthew Hayek uh, published. And if you rationalize that and you just think about supply and demand, that means the price of meat is going to go up considerably. So if you have $100 a week that you've currently been putting aside for animal products and then you were to spend that $100, what's that going to do? That's going to automatically shift you to buying much less 
animal products and you will be moving to a very, very plant predominant diet. And this is what's being lost when I see people online talking about holistic raising and marketing it, throwing up a post or story on their social media with Bel Campo meat or white oak pastures meat like Max Lugavere or Mark Hyman and, and saying, hey, look at me, I'm eating and representing Bel Campo regenerative meat. I'm protecting the environment, glorifying this meat as if it's come to our rescue almost. It's like, hang on, let's slow down and let's look at the science together. I know that the the media pack that that probably came with this meat and when it's being sent to such influencers online who who are no doubt being paid to promote meat companies, it likely said that their practices reverse climate change. But that's not what the science says. So let's get across the science. Let's do some digging together and then let's communicate real facts to people. And and most importantly, if we are all to start eating this type of meat, it means that we're all moving to very, very plant predominant diets. So the disappointing thing here is people who don't understand the science have been persuaded to talk about regenerative meat online. And not only is their messaging incorrect, but it's not coming with the required context about how what they're advocating for will change dietary patterns. Yeah, look at any of these companies. Uh, look at their sites, Belcampo, White Oak Pastures. Uh, one, they're going to make claims that aren't backed by evidence. Like White Oak Pastures is saying that they're they're sequestering tons of carbon in their soil and it's it's going to reverse climate change. I think they've actually changed a few of those wording, you know, since people have been critical of that. But they're in the business of raising livestock. They're in the business of you know, making people feel good about these purchases. And, you know, in some ways they are, of course, because eth- ethically, uh, animal, of course, would be better raised out on pasture, not confined uh, for any period of their life. Uh, this is this is something that, you know, people can, can get behind. So the documentary, just to sort of maybe bring this to a, a, a bit of a, a practical level for people, the documentary talks about the regenerative diet. And I think that was one of my issues that they didn't really define what that was. At a personal level, if you're wanting to best uh, lower the environmental footprint of your plate, the, the food you're buying at the grocery store for your family, what are the things that people should be thinking about and, and in what order? People should be first thinking of, if you're thinking of the environmental impact of your food, Shifting to lower on the food chain to, to plants is the first thing you should be thinking of. You should be thinking of increasing your intake of, of plant-based stuff. And there's other things within that you can do, but the level of difference between the impact of different uh, plant-based foods and the impact of a plant-based food compared, like a plant-based protein, for example, compared to a animal source protein level is just a magnitude difference. So first think of that, right? You first need to think of what you're eating before how it's grown. Then you should think of, okay, I would like to support certain farmers that are doing a certain way for whatever reason. For It can be for communal uh, economic reasons, for, for being supportive of, of farmers that work very hard and require support. It can be for, for looking at just like the greenhouse gases of different you know, fruits and vegetables, uh, how far it's uh, shipped around the world. We talked about this last time, but I mean, the actual transportation of food is actually very, very low. So the whole eating local for the environment is is not a very good argument. Most food is is trucked instead of shipped by plane. But if it is shipped by plane, then you should probably consider something else because very, very perishable items are shipped by plane. 
So what you're saying there is in terms of that local argument, it becomes a bit of a, a distraction. So if you look at the, the likes of Hannah Ritchie's work, it's clear that the the bulk, I think 90% of most foods, the environmental footprint is through manufacturing and production, not through transport. And that's the, what makes the huge difference between animal products and plant foods. So that's that's why that's the most important decision. Would you say, though, from a local perspective, that buying local gives you the opportunity to perhaps get to your local farmer's market or some of these farms that you're talking about and understanding that they're not tilling and they're looking after the land and they're actually using certain practices to create better quality soil? And if so, what what kind of things could people ask their farmer's market or look out for when sort of exploring that? Well, you mentioned one no-till. That, that's a good one too. That's supported by lots of evidence and that was in Kiss the Ground. That's a great part in there. Uh, if they're using cover crops to avoid erosion and avoid uh, either the very damaging uh, greenhouse gases that could run off from from manure like uh, like nitrous oxide or the you know the same amount that could be in synthetic fertilizers. So cover crops really helps protect it and they could ask that at their farmers market to know if they're they're uh, using that. Green manures if they're using just different uh, things on the farm like mulch and crop residues and compost instead of sourcing manure from elsewhere or sourcing uh, synthetic fertilizers from elsewhere. So these are things you can learn. Now People shouldn't obsess over that, though, because you, you first need to understand that the the difference between these little things here in terms of climate change is very low. It can be good for the soil. It can be good for extending the lifespan of this farm. But we're not in a like back to the stat before of only having 60 harvests left. This this stat is being communicated specifically to create fear of like our, our soils are, are eroding. We have nothing left. But that stat is not backed by evidence. And by all means, if someone finds something, uh, send it to me because I've talked to many other people that have looked at this aspect too, and there's no evidence to support that. So back to what I'm saying, just don't obsess over this like differences between different firms. First, you should look at increasing your your amount of you know plant source foods that you're you're eating, and then look at um, you know some other smaller things from there. But then you can look at other environmental actions that could be beneficial in your life at that point. And I know that we've covered this, but if you were to sort of summarize, if there was a farmer listening and maybe they have an intensive uh, animal farm or, or perhaps they have cows on, on, on pasture and, and it's quite an intensive practice, and if they were looking to be more environmentally friendly and to create a system that was sequestering more carbon and being a solution for for climate change. What resources or what things would you suggest that they are thinking about? They should be looking at uh, using the least amount of land possible to grow the most amount of food you can within reason, without damaging soils, without creating issues. You should be looking at these things that were mentioned in the film that are all great. No-till, green manures, uh, different ways that you can limit the amount of things you bring from elsewhere in the farm almost create like a, a cyclical a situation of, of not bringing in too much uh, outputs from elsewhere. Obviously, there, there's a whole lot of issues with, with farmers in terms of, of profitability. But, you know, I think this whole point gets communicated a lot as a bit of a wave of distraction as well, because there's not tons of great farming jobs anymore. Like, look at, look at I think Bruce Friedrich even talked about this in one of your last episodes. Like, uh, look at uh, poultry farming, right? Look at uh, uh, pig farming. 
these are not your typical farming jobs. There's not even really what you would call a farmer doing these jobs. These are like mass factory farm facilities that have very ethical human situations happening there too, uh, unethical work conditions. Um, these are not your typical farmers. So the idea that there's a major concern over every type of farmer, there, there isn't. It's that there's not many left. The only one of the last ones that are left that are actually doing your typical type of farming ranching is, uh, you know, your plant-based farmers, the ones that are growing uh, plants for human consumption or, or, or cattle grazing. And that's why this last ditch effort is happening about cattle grazing. And, you know, I would even lump in like, you know, monocrops for livestock in factory farms as like not your typical farming, your farm either, because it's just rows and rows and rows of the same crop that is not something we should support. So if I could go back to one last thing, like this false dichotomy, which we started at at the very start, this is a a key argument used in the film. It it did make the point that a lot of these crops that are monocultures and grown in the worst way, you know, it it made it a little bit that these are going towards uh, factory farm animals, but not in the way that it should have. It, It made it in the way that like, you know, pesticides are bad. It didn't make it in the way of, okay, if we didn't farm as many animals, if we reduced our amount of meat consumed, we wouldn't need to grow these rows and rows and rows of crops. So this is something that needs to be made clear. And it wasn't made clear to me, at least watching it, and uh, probably not to others too. Yeah, I guess the the difficult thing, and this goes back to what you're talking about there around a lot of farmers not actually being farmers these days, is to my knowledge, those chicken factory farms and pig factory farms, it's not even the farmer that owns those businesses anymore. They're 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 just put on that land and it's big corporations that that own the actual business. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you can look to the situation with with COVID and a lot of the meat packing and, and slaughterhouses that had all kinds of outbreaks here. And just the way these massive companies treated these outbreaks was just so inhumane to the workers, right? And this is something that should be talked about a lot more in terms of like the actual working conditions in these farms are are so, so horrible. And I I was even reading one the other day and, you know, I I didn't look into this in in much detail to see if this is true, but there's even workers that are wearing diapers because they're not getting uh, breaks, enough breaks to go to the washroom. So like th- this is the result of mass factory farming of animals. Yeah, that's crazy. To sort of round this one out and you know, feel free to add anything if you feel like we've missed anything else. I want to add one thing first. There's one thing I really want to add. So there's something that didn't make it in the movie that I thought was going to get in there, but I've heard them say on many podcasts before that I, that I thought was one of the most ridiculous claims they made. And it's the grasslands are better than forests at sequestering carbon. I think this is such a huge misconstrued area of the evidence, uh, if they even looked at evidence to make this claim. Grasslands are in no way better than a forest, like a, a natural forest that is protected than, than grasslands. The only scenario where that, that works is if you're factoring in significant wildfires in an area and then comparing that forest to a grassland, right? Grasslands is not what we want for the world if it could be a forest. And even as we as, as climate change happens and we adapt to it, it's not like there's going to be areas that can't be forest. Like they're just going to change in kind of where they are. So forest, whether it's tropical or temperate forest or boreal forest, all those sequester more. And I mean, I can give figures, but people can easily look up just what an area of land sequesters and, and what we can strive to have. You, you've shared with me before, I think it was Tim Searchinger. I think that's his name. Yeah. yeah. 
and and he kind of speaks to this. And I think that the, there is a bit of a myth out there that desertification and a lot of the land that we presume has always been grasslands has was actually forests. Exactly. This has been measured from satellite data from not only Tim Searchinger, but Matthew Hayek has a study that just released like a month ago. And it looks at the carbon opportunity cost of land. And it looks at satellite data. It looks at, um, you know, all kinds of different aspects of it. And people should take a look at this study or at least the articles that are based on the study. And you're seeing that there's a massive potential to not only address some aspects of climate change with these solutions, but at the same time, you're being able to address the biodiversity crisis Right. There was a point point in the film that, that talked about biodiversity. And again, I go back to compare to what they were saying regenerative agriculture is a biodiversity solution, but they're comparing it to conventional agriculture. They're not comparing it to a protected area of land, whether it's grassland, whether it's a forest, that's where you're going to get biodiversity, not not only in the soil, like the billions of soil organisms that they say you get, but above ground and with mammals and with a predator prey relationship. This is what you want to have. If I could go back to that point about bison, like bison, of course, were areas roaming wild spaces, not everywhere. If you look at where there's massive concentrations of cattle and farm animals, there's tons, tons and tons of bison and large herbivores never even touched. So where does that argument go from there? This is just a way of saying, let's go back to this traditional cultural ideal ideal area of history, but it's it's not a, even a good comparison. In, in that re- report grazed and confused they actually looked at bison as well and they actually showed in some in some areas now there's more research needed here but they they showed that bison did impact the climate back then but there was not nearly the same situation we're in now so it wasn't there was a buffer that allowed for large herbivores to to do this but they did impact in certain ways it seems like for people to sort of take seriously what you're talking about and the 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 carbon sequestration potential of, of different of using land in different ways almost is is very reliant on on the local governments in different countries understanding the need to incentivize carbon storage because I mean ultimately if we just I I completely agree with everything that you're saying right but where it kind of falls down is at a practical level from a commercial sense, whether it's the big corporations selling meat from factory farms or it's the 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 local farmer who has an, inherited a farm and and has a, a you know a commercial business that relies on profits. They're not necessarily being incentivized to restore land to the best possible way in terms of sequestering carbon. I totally hear you. And, and that's a that's a totally valid question. And I just think that question comes when, as a collective society, we don't understand the impacts that climate change will have on the world, on the world economy, on people's livelihoods. This is something that we need to make a better economic argument for climate change as a whole. And that does need to get factored into governments. That needs to get factored into businesses as well, because business and government are both very major drivers of change. But, but, you know, these businesses and governments cater to our individual actions as well. So collective movements of individual action can help shift the the meter in the sense too. convincing farmers to have areas of their land that are rewilded. It's not just for carbon sequestration, but there's there's side benefits to their actual farm as well. Hopefully no one takes from this that I don't think farmers need support because I do. I think there's some good organizations working on this, like Transformation is one. They're looking at specifically helping farmers 
make transitions to more sustainable operations. Uh, it's not just Alan Savory working on this. So, uh, you know, I think I think that's a that's a great question. I think climate change as a whole needs to be understood from the economic side and the economic uh, downfalls because they're going to far away these these uh, short term issues. I, I kind of see it a little bit like solar power. I'd like to to see. You know, with solar power, you're you're sort of incentivized by putting power into the grid in certain countries and contributing to the energy supply for the community through a renewable source. And it would be great if farmers and businesses, again, if there was a way of of and and I think I understand what you're saying. This this there's so many ways beyond just sequestering carbon that this type of regenerative farming would improve planetary health, but if there was a way to incentivize them and then come in and measure how much carbon they're removing from from the environment, it would be, in my view, a way to create faster change around the world. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, it's not that difficult to measure how much carbon is being stored in uh, in soil or to measure how much carbon a tree uh, sequesters. You can measure these things. So we do need more evidence to show this to show different areas that we should protect, like peatlands, for example, and wetlands are areas as well that we should be protecting because they hold so much carbon. And when they're damaged or drained, they they can emit so much as well. So the, the whole idea of restoration and conservation as a part of this regenerative agriculture movement, I'm on board with because we need to restore so many areas of, of our land. And just thinking from a consumer point of view, to sort of add to that system that I'm kind of dreaming about there, wouldn't it be great if you could walk in to your grocery store and perhaps not on plastic, but somehow communicated in front of the food, it showed you the environmental footprint of that food and had a a number of different measures shown. And that would be a way for consumers to choose a very environmentally friendly diet, but it would also be a way to hold the companies accountable because they, the, you know, their label would be determined based on tests done on their farm. It's happening. There's, there's countries that are doing this, like Denmark tested this out in some, some grocery chains. What, what the behavioral science shows still is people don't necessarily choose based on the environment. It's something they think about but there, for food, there's still a lot of science that shows, you know, it's price. Price is a huge point of it. And, you know, taste. So taste and price, right? Th- this is why these plant-based products are going to inevitably continue growing because a lot of them do taste good. Some of them aren't healthy. Some of them are healthier than others, right? So the taste and the price, the price is inevitably going to come down as well on these because there's just so much less that goes into it. You're not raising a, a thousand pound mammal to, to, to get this food to get to your plate. So yeah, I definitely want to see that too. I definitely want to see uh, these, these labels on not just food products, on, on any products. People should know what the environmental footprint of that is. And the actual cost that they cause to the environment should be factored into the price. Absolutely. We, we shouldn't have a system where we're subsidizing certain parts of our food system like factory farmed beef, which is decimating our environment and releasing an enormous amount of greenhouse gas emissions, yet we're subsidizing that and making it artificially cheap on shelf. This is what's called like externalities. There's a whole economic um, environmental case looking at this, environmental externalities. And this just says that, you know, we need to, as best as possible, factor in this price into the cost of products. And 
you know, we also just need to buy less products, really. We, we should really look at reducing consumption overall. I'm not necessarily talking about food, but just overall, overall environmental issues. But we should also factor in the cost of, you know, what that had in the environment, what that had for the taxpayers after. You mentioned then just reducing sort of what we're consuming in general. And that kind of brings me to, I guess, a, a concluding remark from you in terms of we're, everything we've sort of spoken about in this episode is, is largely focused around our food and kiss the ground, largely focused in on, on food. But greenhouse gas emissions and, and planetary health is, is much more than just agriculture. The energy systems have a significant contribution to, to greenhouse gas emissions. So in, for, for context, where does our food choices sort of fit in to the overall solution that's required to, to tackle climate change? And what are some of the other things that people can be thinking about on a day-to-day basis to lower not just their food-based environmental footprint, but their overall footprint? So first question, like food is significant still uh, on an individual ecological footprint. It still makes up about 20 to 40% of your ecological footprint. And that's huge. Uh, It depends where you are in the world, but this is mainly for rich countries. This is where we really should be looking at addressing first is these rich countries that consume the most damaging products for, for food and for just general products. So food is significant on like a, you know, governmental, like high level direct emissions. It's, it's as well significant, like the, the most used stat for emissions from animal agriculture is 14.5%. My thesis research looked at a lot of that figure, looked at the higher figures, Caspiracy used like a 51% figure. And I hope people realize that I'm, I'm as critical of some of the stuff they say as others as well, because some of the figures they used in that is also skewed and not backed by evidence. But uh, it's, it's significant. The, the, what we choose to eat determines what the Earth's land is used for. And however we use the land can determine how much is sequestered into it, how much we can actually bring down within realistic measures. Um, outside of this, though, like there's all kinds of stuff that people can do to lower their ecological footprint, to make environmental decisions. Some people will say the, the main thing you need to do is advocate for government and business change like major corporations are responsible for a lot of the fossil fuel emissions and you should you should vote for people that can talk about climate change it's crazy that in some areas of the world we're still debating whether climate change is real and is not it needs to get way past that we need to look at solutions we need to look at ways we can address that and if if, if someone doesn't even want to look at this then you know there's financial interests involved there's there's just like an economic paradigm that people are stuck in um, not realizing that this same economic paradigm that they're stuck in will be significantly influenced when when the impacts of climate change and biodiversity loss will will come down. So yeah, there, there's a few different camps on what people should do for environmental actions. It's I think it's both individual action and systemic change. You should be advocating for the change you want to see. You should be taking ownership within measure. Uh, you should realize that some decisions that you make personally are influenced by your society too. So even that is within reason. There's only so much you can do in terms of individual willpower in some sense, right? So yeah, I think overall, like, I mean, we talked about this last time, there's all kinds of different things people can do. Looking at food, looking at reducing their overall things they buy, uh, minimalizing, like the whole minimalism movement. I like that. This is something that helps you value the small amount of things that you have 
travel less. I mean, traveling has been something that's been cut down so much uh, since the pandemic. I mean, I love traveling. You, you get to learn about so many different cultures, but this is something that, you know, we can't just do nonstop because aviation is, is an issue as well. If you're in a city that allows biking, like bike, it's good for your health, right? It's good for all kinds of stuff. We Like governments need to make it easier to bike in your city because the biggest barrier to biking is people being scared of being hit by a car. So like go to somewhere like Copenhagen, like they have it figured out with biking. Like it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I'll tell you in Sydney, it's, um, there's a lot of buses on the road here, roads here and it's very windy. So it's not the most bicycle friendly city yet. It's not where I am either. No, it's not. In a lot of areas, a lot of areas in Canada, it's the same. It's not uh, set up for that, but there's, there's many areas that it is. And, uh, yeah, I could go on and on. I could go on and on about the environmental things that people can do. People shouldn't be hard on themselves either. Everyone should do what they can. Educate yourselves, educate others. Don't kind of take camps and create this into like a polarized issue. Meet people where they are and and communicate with, you know, an understanding of psychology and ways we can kind of plant the seed. Most people will not make decisions based on what someone else tells them. Most people will come to it based on their own realization. So I think we I think there's a lot to be said about, you know, meeting people where they are. And we mentioned composting and food waste, which Kiss the Ground mentioned as well, which are uh, sort of, I mean, composting is something that, that most people can, can get involved in some way or another, whether they are doing it in their own garden or sort of dropping it off somewhere. And food waste is, is something that everyone can be a little bit more wary about. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I compost, compost at home and then I use it as, as um, a fertilizer for, for gardening and trees I plant and stuff like that. So it's, um, it's a huge thing. Not everyone can compost probably in the world, but uh, or in, even in rich countries, not everyone can compost, but it's something if you can, you should definitely get into it. All right, man. Thank you for coming back and, and joining me. Was there anything that you feel like we, we didn't cover that you wanted to? I feel like there's all kinds of areas we can provide of hope. I think that they, they provided a good story of hope. I think the plant-based movement as a whole has provided a whole lot of hope. You know, there is divisive areas within like the vegan movement, of course, that can make it, can make perfect the enemy of good. And I think that's, that's an issue, but there's all kinds of areas of hope in terms of restoration of, of forests and just living more environmentally friendly does not mean you're losing things. In many ways, you're gaining things. Look at the blue zones, right? The blue zones have it figured out in a lot of ways. They're living long lives. They're happy. They're they're eating better. They have a sense of community. Like There's no shortage of hope in this movement. I just want it to be backed by evidence. That's what I want. Beautifully said. I think that's a nice way to, to round this one out. Let's, uh, let's do this again sometime soon. We got to talk about fishing. There's a whole lot of stuff at fishing and, and oceans, and uh, it's it, it's a whole thing. It's probably in, in terms of climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, it's not on everyone's radar. But in terms of environmental destruction, it's it's got to be up there with one of the one of the most destructive things. So let's pencil that in for next episode. That sounds good, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. And if anyone wants to find some of these like papers that I'm referring to, like I have whole folders on. Even Alan Savory, like there's a whole folder I have on plantbaseddata.org and uh, people can find that there. I'm, I'm partnered with someone called uh, Dr. Tushar Mehta and he's a, he's a doctor in Toronto. And uh, we've looked at just ways of providing this kind of body of, of evidence for the things that, that I say and, and we say uh, in a way that's accessible and people can easily access. So uh, check it out. I'll put everything on there that I needed from today and people can find some stuff there. 
Beautiful. And I'll, I'll pop that into the show notes so that people can access that nice and easily. Good stuff, man. I really appreciate it. There we go, friends. Always good to sit down with someone and go through the research. The best part, unlike the anecdotes, everything stated in this episode is supported by scientific evidence within the show notes. So if you want to dig up a specific paper, check the resources section of the show notes and there is open access to a lot of peer-reviewed papers. There was one paper that we didn't cover, which I have also added to the show notes. This was a 2020 article published in The Lancet titled, Scientists Call for Renewed Pledges to Transform Agriculture. Here's a, a little quote from their introduction that I wanted to share with you because I think it is a nice way to almost summarize what Nicholas and I were talking about in this discussion around the best use of our land and the false dichotomy that was created in Kiss the Ground. Here we go. Restoring natural vegetation, such as forest, is currently the best option at scale for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and must begin immediately to be effective within the required timescale of reaching net zero emissions by 2050. The livestock sector, having largely displaced natural carbon sinks, continues to occupy much of the land that must be restored. That's a pretty telling quote, and you can read the rest of that paper by going through the show notes. The bottom line is that while Kiss the Ground put forward uh, a few good solutions like composting and reducing food waste and agroforestry, they really danced around holistic grazing using anecdote and a few scenes that talked about Soil Biology 101 that served as a distraction to the fact that the central claim they were making, that holistic grazing can reverse climate change, is not supported by science. All in all, I'm glad that the documentary has opened a conversation, but really from where I sit, what good is hope if it's false hope? We need the powers that be to understand the real science and make huge changes across our globe to better use land, not celebrity-powered documentaries that make a last-ditch effort to keep meat relevant. Less greenwashing and, and sugarcoating and more discussions about real solutions. On an individual level, the most impactful thing we can do to lower our food-related environmental footprint is to eat more plants. It's plain and simple. And then as a population and world, how can we collectively push for change to, to see radical transformation of our food system that places incredible value on conservation and, and takes a, a do-no-harm approach? rather than the current system, which in many parts of the world where the people subsidize, we have systems that are decimating our land and destroying our planet for future generations. And as you will see when I announce more about the charities that the proceeds from my book will be supporting, conservation, protecting forests and, and restoring them is something that together as a community, we will be having an impact on. I think that brings us to the end of this one thank you so much for hanging out with me again i hope that you enjoyed it i hope you took something valuable away from this exchange actually one last thing i almost forgot on the topic of documentaries david attenborough's new documentary a life on our planet is out october 4 on netflix it's it's an hour and a half 
Picasso recount of his life, the, the history of the Earth, the problems with our planet's health, and a vision for the future. So check that out, and let's meet back here for episode 112. Bye for now.